Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good day to you live from New York. I'm Richard Quest in for Julia Chatterley today. And welcome to First Move. Russia is launching missile attacks for a second day across Ukraine. It's retaliation for Saturday's explosion that severely damaged its key bridge to Crimea. Ukrainian officials say at least 19 people were killed in Monday's missile strikes. President Zelensky will be speaking at an emergency G7 meeting taking place today, Tuesday. And in the next hour, we are expecting to hear from the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. It's happening any minute. As soon as he's speaking, we'll bring that to you live. On the futures market. Right now, Wall Street has slipped on Monday and the tech-heavy Nasdaq closed at its lowest level since July of two years ago. J.P. Morgan's chief executive, Jamie Dimon, now warns the U.S. is likely, in his words, to enter recession in the next six to nine months. Lackluster is the best way to describe European markets, even though the Bank of England has adjusted its emergency bond buying programme in an effort to calm the government bond market. We expect to hear from the British Finance Minister Kwasi Kwarteng in about half an hour from now. And again, when that happens, we will bring that to you. We have a lot that we need to bring to your attention today. First, the air raid sirens across Ukraine. Russia has launched a new round of missile strikes, and at least one person has died today in the southern city of Zaporizhia. The energy facilities were struck in the western city of Lviv. It follows Monday's strikes, which killed nearly 20 people and wounded more than 100 in the capital, Kyiv, and other cities. To Jens Stoltenberg now, as I promised, at NATO. In light of the sabotage of the North Stream pipelines, and we will step up and sustain our support for Ukraine, so that we can continue, so that so they can continue to defend themselves and liberate territory from Russian occupation. Ukraine has the momentum and continues to make significant gains while Russia is increasingly resorting to horrific and indiscriminate attacks on civilians and critical infrastructure. President Putin is failing in Ukraine. His attempted annexations, partial mobilization and reckless nuclear rhetoric represents the most significant escalation since the start of the war. And they show that this war is not going as planned. NATO is not party to the conflict, but our support is playing a key role. Allies remain united in their support for Ukraine's sovereignty and self-defense. Ukraine's defense minister 
Oleksiy Resnikov will join us tomorrow, both for the US-led contact group for Ukraine and for a dinner with NATO ministers. Together we will address Ukraine's urgent needs. I welcome the recent announcements by allies to provide more advanced air defense systems and other capabilities to Ukraine. And I look forward to further deliveries. Our message is clear. NATO stands with Ukraine for as long as it takes. President Putin started this war. He must end it by withdrawing his forces from Ukraine. And President Lukashenko should stop the complicity of Belarus in this illegal conflict. <clears throat> On Thursday, I will chair a regular meeting of the nuclear planning group. The fundamental purpose of NATO's nuclear deterrent has always been to preserve peace prevent coercion and deter aggression. Next week, NATO will hold its long-planned deterrence exercise, Steadfast Noon. This is routine training, which happens every year, to keep our deterrence safe, secure and effective. President Putin's Veiled nuclear threats are dangerous and irresponsible. Russia knows that the nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. We are closely monitoring Russia's nuclear forces. We have not seen any changes in Russia's posture, but we remain vigilant. At the Madrid summit in June, NATO leaders decided a fundamental shift in our defense and deterrence to respond to the new security reality. We have doubled the number of NATO battle groups in the east of the alliance. They can be scaled up quickly to brigade size. We are also increasing the number of our high readiness forces. At this ministerial, we will take decisions to increase our stockpiles of munitions and equipment, to speed up the delivery of capabilities, and to use the NATO defence planning process to provide industry with the long-term demand they need to boost production. We will also address the protection of critical infrastructure. NATO has been working on this for many years and following the sabotage of the North Stream pipelines, we have further enhanced our vigilance across all domains. We have doubled our presence in the Baltic and North Seas to over 30 ships, supported by maritime patrol aircraft and undersea capabilities. These efforts are closely coordinated by NATO's Maritime Command. Allies are also increasing security around key installations and stepping up intelligence and intelligence sharing. We will take further steps to strengthen our resilience and protect our crit critical infrastructure. Any deliberate attack against allies' critical infrastructure 
would be met with a united and determined response. Our final session will focus on NATO's missions and operations from Kosovo to Iraq. We will be joined by EU High Representative Borrell because NATO and the European Union face the same security challenges. We have a difficult winter ahead, so it's even more important that North America and Europe continue to stand united in support for Ukraine and in defense of our people. And with that, I'm ready to take your questions. <clears throat> we'll start at the very top with uh, Deutsche Welle NPR. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Secretary-General, um, you said that you will be making decisions at this meeting about how to increase uh, national stockpiles and, and keep, your, keep your arsenals full while supplying more to Ukraine. But for example, with the air defense, the air-to-air -air missile system that Germany is sending, that was something that, that Germany was expecting to order for itself. Estonia has sent its entire shipment of javelins to Ukraine. So are you worried that while allies are supplying Ukraine with everything they can, they are leaving themselves unprotected at home? And what will be your deliverables out of this meeting that will change that in terms of manufacturing processes and streamlining this? Thank you. <clears throat> so NATO allies have provided unprecedented support to Ukraine uh, with uh, capabilities, weapons, ammunition, uh, different types of military support. And that is something, of course, we welcome and we have encouraged this from NATO uh, ever since the uh, uh, invasion started. Actually, we, 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 we did that before the invasion. We have to remember that NATO allies have provided support to Ukraine since 2014, including uh, training tens of thousands of Ukrainian officers, soldiers, which are now playing a key role uh, in the defense against uh, the, the Russian aggression against Ukraine. But after the invasion, uh, allies stepped up. Uh, and of course, very much of the support that NATO allies have provided, the javelins, the, the, the air defense systems, the ammunition they have provided to Ukraine, that has been taken from ex existing stocks. So by doing that, they have reduced their stocks. But that has been the right thing to do. Uh, because it is important for all of us that Ukraine wins um, the battle, the war against uh, the invading Russian forces. Uh, because if Putin wins, that is not only a big defeat for the Ukrainians, but it will be defeat and dangerous for all of us, because it will make uh, the world more dangerous and it will, will make us more vulnerable for further Russian aggression. So that's the reason why we have used NATO stocks, uh, stocks in NATO other countries, to provide support to Ukraine. But of course, the, the, the longer this war drags on, the more important it is that we also then are able to replenish these stocks. And that's exactly why we now are addressing how can we uh, ramp up production so we can uh, uh, produce more, both to replenish stocks, but also to continue to support Ukraine. And uh, I expect ministers to make decisions um, uh, at uh, the ministerial meeting uh, tomorrow and the day after tomorrow on how to use the NATO defence planning process uh, to agree on the more uh, ambitious targets uh, uh, on, for instance, uh, uh, different capabilities, including looking into uh, the possibility of increasing uh, the targets, the guidelines for stocks. Um, this will provide the industry with a long-term demand they need to invest in new uh, 
production uh, capabilities um, because they have been able to increase production partly by uh, utilizing existing uh, um, production cap capacity more, but uh, to really ramp up production, they need to make new investments. I also expect them to agree on how we can further um, strengthen our interoperability, ensure that allies can work together and also jointly uh, purchase um, uh, ammunition uh, uh, capabilities, partly to reduce uh, stocks, but also to, to actually ensure interoperability between allies. And the, the unique NATO defense planning process is, I think, the best tool to ensure that allies uh, are coordinated and actually provide the long-term uh, demand messages to industry to ramp up production. Okay, we'll go to Associated Press. Just then. Thanks. Yes, Lorne Cook from the Associated Press. I have a question on, um, on infrastructure. Uh, Germany was, uh, oh, how can I put it? Um, Deutsche Bahn had its uh, communications cables severed over the weekend in, in Germany, cut off transport in the north of the country. We've also seen the leaks to the, uh, to the pipelines, obviously Nord Stream going to Germany. Um, at, at what point do these attacks, uh, to, sorry, do these incidents then become acts of war? And how does NATO respond to that as a collective alliance? You said the Allies would respond, but how do you do that in this kind of instance? Thank you. Over the last years, NATO has uh, implemented the biggest transformation of collective defense since the end of the Cold War. And part of that is to take fully into account uh, hybrid threats, cyber threats. And therefore, we also stated a few years ago that hybrid and cyber attacks can trigger Article 5, uh, can constitute an armed attack against a NATO ally. And uh, we have um, stepped up both uh, uh, our work on resilience, the protection of critical infrastructure. Uh, we are uh, conducting more exercises, both on hybrid threats and cyber threats. And we are exchanging best practices and we also agreed guidelines on the protection of the critical infrastructure. All of this is about protecting, for instance, undersea uh, uh, capabilities or undersea infrastructure, pipelines, uh, cables, but also, of course, energy uh, 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 grids, uh, energy production, uh, uh, transportation infrastructure. Of course, I cannot comment on those specific incidents because there are ongoing investigations. And I think we need to uh, uh, await the outcome of this in, in investigation before we make any final judgment. But in general, I can say that, of course, we are closely monitor, uh, monitoring uh, every incident that may constitute a hybrid uh, or cyber attack against uh, NATO allies. And, uh, we are Jens Stoltenberg there, the uh, Secretary-General of NATO, uh, giving an, uh, some latest ahead of uh, meeting, leaders meeting, to discuss the way forward. Salma's with me, Salma Abdelaziz. Uh, I, I, as I recap what he said, I think the key points besides this bit about hybrid and cyber attacks can constitute an armed attack, but we know that has been the NATO position before. He says that they, the, the Allies will step up support to liberate, as Ukraine liberates territory, and Ukraine has the momentum, making significant gains, and Putin is failing in Ukraine. What struck out from you? I think there's a couple of things. I think 
the as long as it takes line is always very important and very significant. I think there's an understanding that President Putin, as you heard there, uh, is not changing course. He's not backing down. He's going to continue this conflict. It is absolutely a matter of pride and dignity beyond, of course, the tactical goals he has to to take uh, Ukrainian sovereign territory. So that reiterating that we are there for as long as it takes um, and that discussion of air defense systems in particular, Richard, uh, after the day that Ukraine saw yesterday a barrage, dozens of rockets, missiles and drone attacks all across the country. Ukraine, of course, activating its air defense systems, but only able to take down over half of the projectiles. But still, that means that some of these missiles are landing in playgrounds in Kyiv, of course. So that reiterating that right. air defense systems are at the top of the list for them, that's very important as well, Richard. And it is worth noting, isn't it, Summer? He said that they're closely monitoring the Russian nuclear forces, but they see no evidence of any movement on that. Absolutely. And a reminder that there is going to be, of course, part of NATO's vision promise is nuclear deterrence. So a reminder that there is next week these deterrence exercises, a reminder that these are weekly and scheduled and regular. And yes, of course, that all important indication from intelligence officials that we've heard over and over again that while Moscow has threatened the use of nuclear weapons, there seems to be no signs that the Kremlin is actually preparing to do that. But when you look at what happened yesterday, when you look at a President Putin who is cornered, who is losing on the battleground, that's absolutely in the forefront of everybody's minds, that possibility of tactical nukes. Salma, thank you. Salma Abdelaziz. First move continues. The International Monetary Fund, the IMF's meeting starts this week. The global recession is on the agenda. We have the latest from the World Economic Outlook. And the Spanish economy minister says they're well-placed to, do a, to deal with a downturn. Uh, she'll be with me as well in First Move. The IMF slowed its forecast for global economic growth for the second time in as long. The IMF now says the worst is yet to come. Rahel's with me. Uh, Are they forecasting yet a global recession? Uh, Well, they're saying that the road ahead certainly looks challenging, Richard. And to add to what you said, that not only is the worst yet to come, according to the IMF, but that 2023, for many people around the world, will feel like a recession, right? So I just want to show you globally. So 2021, compared to the 6% global growth that we saw, IMF expecting 2022 to remain at 3.2 percent, but 2023 revising downward, Richard, to 2.7 percent. And then I want to show you just the breakdown for the U.S. and the euro area. So uh, revising also lower the U.S.'s global growth or U.S. growth rather for 2022 and 2023. And we can pull up that uh, full screen for you. But what you have here, Richard, is an acceptance that the road ahead does, in fact, look challenging. So for the U.S., for example, predicting uh, growth for 2022, 1.6%. But then look at 2023, 1%. Uh, not so great for the euro area either. And we can pull up those numbers for you as well. And inflation, as you can see here, consumer prices, uh, 8.3% for the euro area. But take a look, Richard, here at 2023, the estimate, 0.5%. Right. So What you have is a a darkening of the clouds. What you have here is an acceptance that the road ahead will, in fact, look challenging and for many around the world will feel like a recession. Rahel, thank you. We'll talk more on Crestmeans Business about that. And talking about Crestmeans Business, the IMF's chief economist, Pierre-Olivier Gorinache, is on the programme. 
It's at three o'clock Eastern time, which is eight London, nine Central Europe, 10 Middle Eastern as you head in that direction. You can work out the time yourself. It's 9.21 here in New York. The Spanish government's been defending the robustness of its economy despite the looming recession. Madrid has lowered its economic growth outlook for next year to 2.1 from 2.7. The governor of the Bank of Spain is urging banks to prepare for uncertainty, arising energy prices and bottlenecks in international trade. Spain's first deputy prime minister says employment and investment are now higher than before the pandemic, and that helps strengthen the economy. The minister is with me, the deputy prime minister. She's in New York meeting investors, and then I assume we'll be on the way to, as we all will be, to the IMF and World Bank meetings. Nadia Calvinia is Spain's first deputy prime minister and minister of economy. Minister, as we look at the situation, are you now forecasting a recession, be it technical or deep or short, in Spain? Well, we're meeting. Hi, hi, Richard. Very nice to see you again. Uh, well, we're meeting this week in, in Washington in a, in a very challenging and delicate context uh, at the international level. The global economy is slowing down. Inflation is, is rising in, in many countries. Interest rates are going up also on both sides of the Atlantic. There's still bottlenecks in some supply chains. So, it is a challenging context and the developments in the coming months will largely depend on what happens with the war, what happens with energy prices and in our case what happens with the German economy. But in this challenging context all institutions and analysts foresee the Spanish economy to continue to grow in 2023 and that's due to the strengths and elements that bring resilience that you are referring to. Now that, I, I, was, I have to sort of refer to the fiasco in the UK over tax cuts. Now, we, we, without getting into the, the, the sort of the awfulness of having to, the reversal of policy per se, on the principle that Liz Truss is talking about, which is one of growth, she says there's a necessity for growth at a time of recession. Now, we can argue about how you do it, but do you fundamentally agree with that principle? Of course, we need to continue to grow. I mean, growth and job creation is essential if we want to pursue a sustainable and responsible fiscal policy. That's what we're doing in Spain. So since we had such a strong recovery in 2021 with 5.5 uh, GDP growth uh, percent uh, and this year also with around 4.4 percent foreseen uh, growth uh, for the whole of 2022, what we're doing is profiting from this growth and job creation to continue to reduce our deficit and debt to GDP ratios. And we are on track to meet our targets. I think that governments right now need to be uh, doubly or twice as prudent and responsible as in normal times, as in a context of uncertainty and volatility, fiscal responsibility is of the essence. Ah, but isn't that the contradiction that we're in at the moment? The fiscal prudence that you talk about, but counterbalanced by a slowdown and a recession in some places that will require fiscal targeting of, of that. So you, which is it to be? Which is taking dominance and pre- precedence at the moment? Keeping growth moving or fiscal prudence? Well, I would, I would actually uh, and, and respectfully disagree with the notion that reducing taxes on the rich is actually supporting growth. What we have seen through practical experience is that reducing taxes on the richest 
parts of our society or the largest com corporations only makes some parts of our societies richer, but it, it makes inequalities grow and it doesn't support growth. So, uh, you know, our approach is one where we are, take measures which are fiscally responsible, but trying also to support the most vulnerable parts of our society and SMEs, which are most directly impacted by the increasing costs derived by, by growing energy prices. If we, Spain, along with I would say one or two other uh, countries, which is, which are expected to continue growing, but you are in danger of being tied to the train, which where policy has to be made to the largest members, and they're the slowest. So, for instance, the ECB is going to continue to raise rates, and that's going to affect you in Spain, because arguably, as you yourself said at the beginning, you have to keep an eye on the German economy. Well, absolutely. Right now, uh, monetary policy is being driven by the top priority of fighting inflation. But the sources of inflation are different on both sides of the Atlantic. So in the US, it is a demand-driven inflation as well as the interest rate, uh, as the uh, cost of energy going up. In the case of Europe, it is really an imported inflation coming from the high energy prices plus the depreciation of the euro. That makes it imperative for the ECB to raise interest rates so that we do not continue with the depreciation of the euro. But they need to really get it right so that they do not endanger growth and job creation, uh, which is essential not only for prosperity, also for fiscal responsibility, as we were saying just a moment ago. Ah, the three-card trick. Can you balance and get it right? The, the, the nirvana of the soft landing. Finally, you're in New York. Uh, Spain has always been an attractive place for investors. There's never been any shortage at one level uh, of investors. What are they looking at now for, from you? What do investors tell you that, yeah, we like what you've done so far. We now want to see you do this. <laughs> well, is that, that's a very good question. I think that there are many elements that make Spain particularly attractive right now. It's not only the talent, it's not only the strong growth that we are registering. It is also the dynamism of our climate transition, which makes it uh, much more efficient and green, you know, to establish a, an, an industry, for example, in Spain, that is attracting a lot of investors, not to speak about the digital infrastructures, which are also bringing lots of digital nomads and other, and other uh, R&D facilities to our country. So there are many elements that they're looking at right now, which makes Spain particularly attractive. Not, not only, but also in the area of audiovisual production. I will be meeting some large right. uh, producers uh, here in New York precisely to see how to support their investments in Spain. We're always grateful to talk to you. I'm grateful for your time this morning, Minister. Hopefully I'll see you down in Washington at the IMF and World Bank too. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. See you later. As we continue from Spain... To the UK, you heard what the minister was talking about, uh, basically disagreeing with the uh, policies of the Trust administration. But anyway, the Chancellor's going to be before Parliament very shortly. He's going to explain and he'll answer questions. And you'll hear it here on First Move. It is First Move and you are most welcome. And the market has now been open uh, barely a couple of minutes. Oh, well, it, uh, it could have been worse. Uh, bearing in mind what we saw yesterday, but it's the sort of choppiness that's getting everybody a bit antsy at the moment. And the market is contending with the IMF issuing a new warning about the global economy. The worst is yet to come. Throw in Jamie Dimond of JP Morgan Chase 
saying he sees a recession in the next six to nine months. It's hardly revolutionary what he said, but it's confirming what others have believed. And shares of American Airlines are moving higher. The company says Q3 is expected to top guidance. The stairs up 5%. Zoom is down after Morgan Stanley downgraded our favorite pandemic uh, communication tool, along with Teams and Webex and all the others. Anyway, lowered the prices. The Bank of England's warning the risk of a UK financial crisis most certainly hasn't gone away. The market's still real shock from the government's commitment to slash taxes and raise borrowing, but don't tell how they're going to do it all. The UK's backtracked on the tax cut for high earners. The central bank's still worried about soaring yields in bonds. And the Chancellor is expected to speak about the economy in Parliament later this week. There'll be the, we'll have to face the IMF in Washington. Uh, the IMF, basically, I mean, I've seen IMF language before Claire Sebastian. They rarely sell a G7 nation you're wrong and you really do need to do something about it and change policy, which, of course, the Chancellor did. Yeah, the IMF was very strongly worded about the mini budget and the effect it had on the markets. And there are warnings in uh, today's report, Richard, that the UK could face uh, inflation that comes in above of, above other G7 nations and about the continued market instability that we're seeing as a result uh, of the mini budget. The hangover for that painful and long and it continues to be felt. You see that that as the Chancellor is now set to face Parliament uh, for the first time since the mini budget, the backdrop to that, Richard, is a two part, two day intervention again by the Bank of England, uh, even after they announced the £65 Claire, billion. The Chancellor, uh, the Chancellor is speaking. Let's have a listen for a moment or three. Uh, uh, sized enterprises, and I'm sure that many of his constituents will appreciate the strong measures that we introduced. Excellent. I was being slightly... Mr Speaker, I refer members to my entries in the, in the Register of Interest. In welcoming the government's growth agenda, notwithstanding the lack of reassurance to the markets, will the Chancellor seriously considering, consider lowering taxation on smaller businesses, despite the package that's already been announced, because they are the engine room of the economy, they do employ most people in the private sector, and if cost savings are necessary, HS2 and the streamlining of a myriad of crangos could be the first option. Of course, uh, I'm very pleased to tell my honourable friend that we're going to introduce a medium-term fiscal plan in three weeks. But consider the, mes- the, the measures we've already introduced. National uh, insurance hikes have been reversed. Corporation tax rise has been scrapped. And the annual investment allowance remains at a million pounds. These are, investment- these are uh, measures which uh, small businesses up and down the land have been very, very appreciative of. Ian Levy. Thank you, Mr Speaker. As my right honourable friend will be aware, small businesses are the backbone of our local economy. And none know more than Caitlin Bakery in Cramlington. And they have expanded from running a bakery to running a cafe and now a dessert bar. So would my right honourable friend please assure me that he will, this government will do all we can to help these businesses thrive? Absolutely right. And of course... In relation to the bakery that he uh, mentions, uh, Catling Bakery, we've also supported them through an energy package. Uh, £60 billion for households and businesses for six months, and that's something that we absolutely uh, felt necessary to do. Scott McCartney. 
Thank you, Speaker. It's yeah, like yeah, I never yeah. went away. And I refer members and colleagues to my entry in the Register of Interest. Supporting businesses will always be a key pillar for growing our economy and by association, our small and medium-sized businesses, which there are many of in Lincoln and more across our county of Lincolnshire. They should be at the forefront of the government's growth agenda. Devolved areas such as Teesside and the West Midlands have continually been successful in delivering for their areas. Greater Lincolnshire stands ready right now for a maximum devolution deal. Therefore, will the Treasury support any such deal for Greater Lincolnshire? Yeah. My honourable friend uh, knows, Mr Speaker, that devolution is at the heart of the government's plans to level up and strengthen communities. And of course, in the levelling up white paper, the government has fully committed to offering a devolution deal to every area that wants one by 2030. Yeah. Sherman. Can I declare an interest to the uh, Chancellor? I've actually worked in a small and medium business. I've actually, unlike many people on these benches, worked in manufacturing industry. And the manufacturing SMEs in my constituency are absolutely up against it in terms of the cost of energy. What is he going to do to relieve them right now? I think the Honourable Gentleman makes a very good uh, point and represents his constituency ably. In respect right. of small businesses, we have introduced a package the energy hasn't really yet been grilled on uh, the fiasco. They're doing small and medium businesses. But the reality is, I mean, the overhang from the Bank of England still remains and the policy is still by no means certain. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, Richard, that he's clearly trying to take the attention back now to what the government is doing at the lower end uh, of its tax-cutting agenda after, of course, the debacle uh, over that U-turn around the uh, cut-to-the-top rate tax, the 45% uh, tax. He's trying to make the point that they're supporting small businesses uh, with their energy package for six months, that there are cuts to things like national uh, insurance and all of that, trying to sort of deflect attention away from the, uh, the criticism that they've faced over cutting taxes mainly uh, yeah. for the rich. But he, the, the fact remains that whatever he says today, we don't know what is in his next budget yet. We still have fiscal and monetary policy working uh, at odds with each other, and we still don't know exactly how the government is going to pay for these tax cuts, Richard. Which is the crucial point, Claire Sebastian. Thank you. On last night's Questions Business, I asked the former Liberal Democrat leader, Sir Vince Cable, about the scale of the political damage that's been inflicted. Sir Vince was also the business secretary in the David Cameron coalition government. There are two fundamental problems. I mean, one is political, that the position of the government, the prime minister, is structurally weak. I mean, she was chosen uh, by a minority of members of her own party, which is a microscopic fraction of the British public. She's supported by only a small minority of her own MPs. So her position is weak, and she's underlined the weakness by just choosing supporters, cronies, if you like, to be in her cabinet. So her political position is weak. And then, in addition, we've had this, you know, fundamental misjudgment about the, the fiscal policy of borrowing for tax cuts, which few people, um, even sympathisers, believe will have the effect of stimulating growth. Um, and, and there is a simply problem of showing that the numbers add up. So uh, uh, the, 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 the external impression and the internal impression but, is, is poor. They're going to work, work so, hard to improve it. So but on the fundamental thought that the Prime Minister expressed at her conference last week, this idea of we are going to do it differently, we are going to go in a direction um, that some would say is contrarian, 
Uh, Is there not a point that she could be right and that expanding your way through growth is an answer here? Well, it's right that we should expand and achieve growth, um, but it's it's a platitude. The problem is, how do you achieve it? I mean, in the short term, we're heading to slower growth. In the medium term, Britain is going to have to increase its taxes because we have a very large deficit. Um, Public spending is under a great deal of pressure in terms of health. Debt service is going to rise. Um, The one thing that she can't afford to do without completely sacrificing credibility is axing public investment, which was fundamental to the whole idea of levelling up the underdeveloped bits of the rich economy. So, um, yeah, of course, everybody wants to see more growth, but not at the cost of destroying the environment, widening inequalities, problems of that kind. That is Sir Vince Cable. This is First Move. Top story, Russia's war in Ukraine and a new round of attacks struck the country. Not as ferocious as uh, were the ones we saw on Sunday, but at least one person has died in the city of Zaporizhia. Energy facilities have been hit in the western city of Lviv. Today, the Russian Ministry of Defence has confirmed they are intentionally targeting these energy facilities, which is why it's appropriate this morning. We're talking to Alexander Rodnyadsky an advisor to the Ukrainian president who joins me from Kiev in Ukraine. Sir, um, we know where the rockets took place, where the rocket attacks happened, that there was severe damage to the electricity grid and there is still not electricity. It has not been fully repaired. What can you tell me about the situation today? Yes, that's right. So Russia is continuing to launch rockets throughout the whole country. They're not hitting as much Kiev today. Um, They hit Kiev quite severely yesterday. Today, a lot of those rockets were actually shut down by our air defense. Kiev is better protected than some other cities. So Lviv, for example, suffered some devastating attacks to which you were referring, I think. They destroyed a lot of the electricity infrastructure, electricity stations. Uh, You know, there's a power outage in Lviv and there's little reception, even mobile reception right now. They're doing the same in Dnipro. They're doing the same in Zaporizhia. So it's going on as we speak. And obviously it's the usual Russian terrorist tactics in this war. Right. But the the problem for you is that it takes time to repair those facilities and they can be damaged again and again and again by Russian missiles. And the Ukrainian people will suffer severely as a result. Absolutely. And that's why our reconstruction and recovery efforts cannot really begin until we finally reach an end to this war. In other words, until we're victorious, fully victorious in the war effort, there's always going to be some uncertainty about the economic prospects precisely because of what you described. How can you recover? How can you rebuild an economy when it's constantly being bombarded? So that's why we're left with second best options, that is to reform, strengthen our institutions, and make sure that we can still function decentralized in a decentralized way. So that's what we're doing. But yes, obviously, the security threats is the primary objective. We need to make sure that we can secure the sky. There's many countries that were hesitant so far to give us air defense systems. And hopefully it's clear to everyone that that really makes a difference. And we need all the possible air defense in the world. 
Do you think you can, do you think the G7, when President Zelensky addresses the G7 and asks for uh, enhanced, sophisticated air defense uh, capability? So, as you say, countries have been reluctant to do it. Are you prepared to guarantee that such missiles or such equipment uh, wouldn't be used offensively against Russia per se, in Russian territory? But also, do you think you'll get a better hearing? Well, air defense is just what it is. It's air defense, right? It's, it's there to secure our skies. And if you looked at yesterday, Russia launched about 100 missiles and about 50 of those were actually shot down. But that still means that the other 50 actually reached their targets. So it's, it's very porous in terms of our defense. There's still a lot lacking from what we can do. And that's why we need this extra protection. So it's not an offensive weapon by any means. The other weapons that we're asking for, tanks, armored vehicles, other equipment. Right. That, of course, can be used offensively. But listen, Ukraine has always been clear about what it wants. We want to liberate our territory. There's nothing else, no other objectives that we ever saw, sought or had in mind. So there's no risk whatsoever to other countries and even Russia. So, OK, the NATO secretary general this morning describing as Ukraine has the momentum making significant gains and Putin is failing. He also says that NATO and the other countries are not party to the war, but support playing a key role. There's a very fine line, isn't there, between not being a party and supporting a key role? In some sense, there is. In some sense, there isn't. I mean, look, Ukraine... If we just look at the facts, it's Ukraine, Ukrainian people, Ukrainian soldiers that are really doing the, the hard work. It's they're putting their life on the line and risking their blood. It's not the other countries. So in that sense, it's not really being part of the war effort. Of course, on the other hand, we're getting equipment, we're getting support. But so is Russia, by the way. Russia is using Iranian drones. Does that make Iran party to the war? Does that make it a participant of the war? Probably not. Russia is also using you know, some shipments that they're getting from North Korea, apparently, maybe even from China. So, you know, these countries are not really risking being party so, to the war. So, so I think the same counts for, for NATO. I, I, I know that Ukraine hasn't admitted publicly or otherwise whether or not it was behind the Kerch Bridge uh, explosion. But putting that to one side, that's not the question I'm asking. The question, was it worth it? If you now look at the ferocity of the attack with the promise of more to come, was that explosion on that single bridge worth the cost to Ukraine? Yes, and I'll just repeat, we haven't confirmed that it was Ukraine behind it. We really don't know who was behind it. It's well possible that some Russian movement against the war effort. Russia's regime is about is starting to collapse. We're seeing the first signs, so that might well be what's behind it. Was it worth it? Look, I mean, from Ukraine's perspective, this is an illegal construction. And if there is a blatantly illegal construction anywhere in your country, there is a possibility of taking it down. And that's how we view it. It was, you know, constructed without any permission by, part, by someone who invaded and annexed part of our territory. So one option to go about it is to take it down. I'm grateful you joined us today. Thank you, sir. I appreciate your time. First move. As we continue, Israel and Lebanon. Now, they're technically still at war, but they managed to reach this historic agreement over a disputed maritime border. Again, it's all about energy and how to share the spoils. In a moment. Israel and Lebanon say they've at last reached an agreement on where the sea border between the two territories lies. It's a US brokered deal. Uh, the two countries. Israel and Lebanon are technically at war, but this agreement will pave the way for the energy industry to exploit the oil and deposits 
under the sea. Joining me, CNN's Hadas Gold. She's in Jerusalem. It's a bonanza for both. The question is, can they share it out? Well, Richard, according to this agreement, it seems as though in the statements we're hearing from leaders from both countries is everybody unusually seems to be pretty satisfied and happy with the terms of the agreement. It seems as though the potential for business from this gas-rich area, especially as we're seeing Europe at dire need of gas as a replacement for Russian gas and the pressure from the international community, is a pretty good motivator to come to some sort of agreement between these two countries as you, that, as you noted, are technically still at war, technically still sworn enemies. I should note that this agreement is actually each country individually with the United States, not with one another. So I want to pull up a map so we can understand what we're talking about, about what this dispute was about. This has been a long-running, years-long dispute. There's been lots of starts and stops to these negotiations. So you can see all those different lines. Are there different border claims from both Israel and Lebanon? But essentially what this deal, according to officials I've speak, spoken to, the deal will demarcate the maritime border essentially along line 23 there. And so as you can see, even though it crosses into one of those gas fields, the Kana gas field, uh, there has been an agreement where essentially the company, the French company that will be exploiting that gas field for Lebanon, will essentially buy out Israel's portion of that field. And then Israel will have complete co control of the Karish field, which is ready to go online in essentially in a matter of days. Now, as I said, leaders from both Israel and Lebanon have praised this deal. And importantly, for security matters for Israel, they're thinking about Hezbollah, that uh, Iranian-backed uh, Lebanese Shiite militia group that is very powerful in southern Lebanon. They have threatened the Israeli gas field if they came online before an agreement was reached. And as far as we understand, Hezbollah has said that they will abide by the agreement. Israeli officials feel this will keep the northern border calm. And importantly, there's a lot of money here. There are some estimates that this entire area, the amount of gas there could be worth something like $3 billion, Richard. Hadass Gold in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, many, many thanks for that. That is first move for this morning. The markets are open. They're doing business. I will wrap up the day for you with Quest Means Business in a few hours from now. For the moment, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. This is CNN. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 